Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast. For this week, you start a brand new audiobook adventure. I try a brand new whiskey and compare it to some of my standards, and we talk about a brand new podcast that you all should listen to. Besides the Going Up Cast, naturally. That's right, this week we begin Peter Pan, or Peter and Wendy, as the official book is called. Uh, we got the first two chapters of that this week. It is really good. I'm very much enjoying it. Uh, I try Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve, which is another whiskey aged in rum barrels, much like my all-time favorite Belvini Caribbean cask whiskey. And I talk about Fake Doctors and Real Friends, the Scrubs Rewatch podcast hosted by Zach Braft and Donald Faison, which is really good. If you enjoy the Going Up cast, there's only one way you can support the Going Up cast, which is patreon.com forward slash goingupcast, where you can become a $5 patron and get access to the monthly live streams, which I really need to get back in doing. Um, I've actually been thinking about putting some exclusive audiobooks on Patreon as well. Um, just as kind of like an added bonus of things to do because with the ongoing situation, I just have oodles of free time. So <laughs> it's a, it's a thought, it's a thought, it's a thought. Let me know what you think about it. Feel free to follow us on Facebook at going cast, um, facebook.com forward slash going cast. And you can also follow me on Instagram at going up cast. And that is enough of my heming and hawing, hemming and hooing. And let's get right sure, fuck it. Let's dive right into Peter Pan. Okay, just kind of gonna read one chapter because I'm curious to see how this goes. Uh, this is the first chapter of Peter and Wendy by J.M. Barry, which was originally a stage play in 1908 and was turned into a novel in 1911. And it is the original Peter Pan story is essentially what this is. Uh-huh. Chapter one, Peter breaks through. All children, except one, grow up. I'm guessing they're talking about Peter. They soon know that they will grow up, and in a way, Wendy knew this. A new, uh, and the way Wendy knew was this, rather. One day, when she was two years old, she was playing in the garden, and she plucked another flower and ran with it in her, uh, to her mother. Suppose she must have looked rather delightful, for Mrs. Darling put her hand to her heart and cried, Oh, why can't you remain like this forever? Um, this was all that passed between them on the subject, but henceforth, Wendy knew that she must grow up. You always know after you are two. Two is the beginning of the end. Of course, they lived at 14 until Wendy um, came... Uh, hold on. Of course, they lived at 14, and until Wendy came, her mother was the chief one. She was a lovely lady. With a romantic, interesting. She was a lovely lady with a romantic mind and such a sweet mocking mouth. Her romantic mind was like a ti- like the tiny boxes, one within the other, that come from the puzzling east. However many you discover, there was always one more, and her sweet mocking mouth had one kiss on it that Wendy could never get, though there it was, perfectly conspicuous in the right-hand corner. What the fuck does any of that even mean? The way Mrs. Darling won her was this. The many gentlemen who had been boys when she was a girl discovered simultaneously that they loved her, and they all ran to her house to propose to her except Mr. Darling, who took a cab, and nipped it, f- and nipped in first, and so he got her. Jesus, all right. He got Oliver, except the innermost box in the kiss. He never knew about the box, and in time he gave up trying for the kiss. Wendy thought Napoleon could have got it, but I can picture him trying and then going off in a passion, slamming the door. Mr. Darling used to boast to Wendy that her mother not only loved him, but respected him. He was one of those deep ones who knew about stocks and shares. Of course, no one really knows, but he seemed, uh, but he quite seemed to know, and he often said stocks were up and shares were down in a way that would make would have made any woman respect him. All right, that's definitely a way to do, go about that. <laughs> Mrs. Darling was married in white, and at first she kept the books perfectly, almost gleefully, as if it were a game, and not much, not so much as a Brussels sprout was missing. But by and by, whole cauliflowers dropped down, and instead of them, uh, there were pictures of babies without faces. She drew them when she should have been totting up. They were Mrs. Darling's guesses. She drew them when she should have been totting up. What does totting up mean? Totting. Um, tot, verb. Add up numbers and amounts. Interesting. To tot. New to me. 
Fascinating. Wendy came first, then John, then Michael. For a week or two after Wendy came, it was doubtful whether they would be able to keep her, as she was another mouth to feed. Mr. Darling was frightfully proud of her, but he was very honorable, and he sat on the edge of Mrs. Darling's bed, holding her hand and calculating expenses while she looked at him imploringly. She wanted to risk it, come what might, but that was not his way. His way was with a pencil and piece of paper. He was a big D&D fan. And if she confused him with suggestions, he had to begin at the beginning again. Now don't interrupt. He would beg of her. I have one pound seventeen here and two and six at the office. I can cut my coffee at the office, save ten shillings, make two, nine, and six. With your eighteen and three makes three and nine, seven. With five, not, not, in my checkbook makes eight, t nine, seven. Who's, who's that moving? Eight, nine, seven, dot, carry seven. Don't speak, my own. And the pound you lent to that man who came to the door, quiet child, and dot, carry child. There, you've done it. Did I say 997? Yes, I said 997. The question is, can we try it for a year or on 997? Of course we can, George, she cried. But she was prejudiced in Wendy's favor, and he was really the grander character of the two. Remember mumps, he warned her almost threateningly, and he went off again. Bumps one pound. That is what I have put down, but I dare say it will be more like 30 shilling. Don't speak. Measles one five. German measles half a guinea. It makes two fifteen six. Don't wag your figure. Whooping cough. Say 15 shillings. And, and so it went. And it added up differently each time. But at last, Wendy just got through with mumps reduced to 12 six and the two kinds of measles treated as one. There was the same excitement over John and Michael had an even narrower squeak, but both were kept. And so, what the hell would they have done? Orphanage, I guess? I don't know. But hey, you've kept your children. Like you're supposed to. I guess. I don't know. I guess people give the kids up for adoption all the time. Uh, if they feel like they can't provide them a good home. And maybe that's what the darlings were doing. I don't know. Anyway. And soon you might have seen the three of them going in a row to miss... Or going in a row... To Miss Folsom's kindergarten school, accompanied by their nurse. Oh, so you can't afford a goddamn caregiver and your three children. So why the fuck? You could ask the caregiver before you ask your children. Mrs. Darling loved to have everything just so. And Mr. Darling had a passion for being exactly like his neighbors. So, of course, they had a nurse. As they were poor, owing to the amount of milk the children drank, this nurse was a prim Newfoundland dog called Nana. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who had belonged to no one in particular until the Darlings engaged her. She had always thought children important. However, the Darlings had become acquainted with her in Kensington Gardens, where she spent most of her spare time peeping into... All right. Perambulators. Perambulators. Learning a lot of words today. Perambulator. Um, a baby carriage. A pram. Perambulator. Interesting. Um, yes. Well, that's a, that's a new word for me. Do, 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 do. And was much hated by careless nursemaids, whom she followed to their homes and complained of to their mistresses. She proved to be quite a treasure of a nurse, how thorough she was at bath time, and up at any moment of the night if one of her charges made the slightest cry. Of course, her kennel was in the nursery. She had a genius for, no, or for knowing when a cough is a thing to have no patience with and when it needs stocking round your throat. She believed uh, to her last day in old-fashioned remedies like rhubarb leaf and made sounds of contempt over all this newfangled talk about germs and so on. It was a lesson in propriety uh, to see her escorting the children to school, walking sedately by their side when they were well-behaved and butting them back into line if they strayed. On John's footer dates, she never once forgot his sweater, and she usually carried an umbrella in her mouth in case of rain. In uh, There is a room in the basement of Mrs. Folsom's school where the nurses wait. They sat in forms while Nana lay on the floor, but that was the one only difference. They affected to ignore her as of an inferior social status to themselves, and she despised their light talk. She resented visits uh, to the nursery form for, uh, nursery from Mrs. Darling's friends. But if they did come, she first whipped off Michael's pinafore and put him into one with blue braiding and smoothed out Wendy and made a dash at John's hair. No nursery could possibly have been conducted more correctly than Mr. Darling Nina, yet sometimes wondered uneasily whether the neighbors talked. What about the fact that an incredibly intelligent, competent dog is taking care of your children? That's incredible. The neighbors are talking about how fucking lucky you are that you've got a goddamn dog taking care of your kids. You've got a goddamn dog. 
taking care of your fucking kids. That's amazing. Do you know how goddamn fortunate? God damn it. Ugh. Anyway, he had his position in the city to consider. What the fuck? All right. You should be fucking flabbergasted at your own goddamn fortune that you've got a fucking dog taking care of your kids. Anyway. Nana also troubled him in another way. He had sometimes a feeling that she did not admire him. Um, I know she admires you tremendously, George, Mrs. Darling would assure him. And then she would sign to the children uh, to be specially nice to father. Lovely dances followed, in which the only other servant, Liza, was sometimes allowed to join. Such a midget she looked in her long skirt and maid caps, uh, though she had sworn when engaged uh, that she would never see ten again. The gaiety of those romps, and the gayest of all was Mrs. Darling, who would pirouette so wildly that all you could see of her was the kiss. And then if you had uh, dashed at her, you might have got it. There was never a simpler, happier family until the coming of Peter Pan. Mrs. Darling first heard of Pan, or Peter rather, when she was tidying up uh, her children's minds. Mrs. Darling first heard of Peter when she was tidying up her children's minds. Yes. It was the nightly custom of every good mother after her children are asleep to rummage into their minds and put things straight for the next morning, repacking into their proper place the many articles that have wandered during the day. If you could keep awake, but of course you can't, you would see your own mother doing this, and you would find it very interesting to watch her. It's quite like tidying up drawers. You would see her on her knees, I expect, lingering humor humorously over some of your contents, wondering where on earth you had picked uh, things, uh, this thing up, making discoveries sweet and not so sweet, pressing this to her cheek as if she, it were as nice as a kitten, and hurriedly stowing that out of sight. When you wake in the morning, the naughtiness and evil passions with which you went to bed, have been folded up small and placed at the bottom of your mind, and on top, beautifully aired, are spread out your prettier thoughts ready for you to put on. What the fuck is this book talking about? Is it implying that Mrs. Darling has, like, some kind of telekinetic ability to invade the minds of her children so she can sort out their memories and thoughts? That's fucking... That's fucking intense. And it goes on. I don't know whether you've seen a map of a person's mind. Doctors sometimes draw maps of other parts of you, and your own map can become intensely interesting. But catch them trying to draw a map of a child's mind, which is not only confused, but keeps going round and round all the time. There are zigzag lines on it, just like your temperature on a card, and there are probably roads in the islands, for the Neverland is always more or less an island. With astonishing splashes of color here and there, coral reefs and rakish-looking rakish -looking crafts, and the offing savage and lonely lairs and gnomes who are mostly tailors, and caves through which a river runs, and princes with six elder brothers, and a hut and a hut fast going to decay, and one very small old lady with a hooked nose. It would be an easy map if that were all, but there was also the first day of school, religion, fathers, the round pond, needlework, murders, hangings, verbs that take the dative? Sure. Chocolate pudding day, getting into braces, say 99, three pence for pulling out your tooth yourself, and so on. And either these are part of the island, or there are another map showing uh, through, and it is all rather confusing, especially as nothing will stand still. Of course, the Neverlands vary a good deal. John's, for instance, had a lagoon of flamingos flying over it, uh, at which John was shooting. While Michael, was, who was very small, had a flamingo with lagoons flying over it. John lived in a boat turned upside down on the sands, Michael in a wigwam, and Wendy in a house of leaves deftly sewn together. John had no friends, Michael had friends at night, and Wendy had a pet wolf forsaken by its parrots. But on the whole, the Neverlands had uh, have a family resemblance. If they stood still in a row, you could say of them that they, they have each other's nose, and so forth. On these magic shores, children at play are forever beaching their coracles. Oh yeah, we know what that is from Treasure Island. We too have been there. We can still hear the faint sound of the surf, though we shall land no more. Of all the delectable islands, uh, the Neverland is the snuggest, most compact, not large and sprawly, you know, with the tedious distances between one adventure and another, but nicely cramped. When you play at it by day with the chairs and tablecloth, it is not the least alarming, but in two minutes before you go to sleep, it becomes very nearly real. That is why there are nightlights. Huh. So I'm guessing his, by, like, this is their imagination sphere is what he's getting at here, but he calls it the Neverland. It's very interesting um, parlance that he's developed here. I say he. J.M. Barry. Um, I don't know. I'm guessing it's a, it's a dude, but I, I don't know. I simply don't know. 
Occasionally, in her travels through her children's minds, Mrs. Darling found things she could not understand. And of these, quite the most perplexing was the word Peter. She knew of no Peter, yet here he was, and there in John and Michael's minds, while Wendy began to uh, began to being scrawled all over with him. The name stood out in bold letters than any other words, and Mrs. Darling gazed. Um, she felt that it had an oddly cocky appearance. Yes, he is rather cocky, Wendy admitted with regret her mother had been questioning her. But who is he, my pet? He's Peter Pan, you know, mother. And first, Mrs. Darling did not know. But thinking back into her childhood, she remembered a Peter Pan who was said to live with the fairies. There were odd stories about him. And that, and that when children died, he went part of the way with them so that they should not be frightened. She had believed in him at a time, but now she was married and full of sense, she quite doubted whether there was any such person. Besides, she said to Wendy, he would be grown up by this time. Oh, he isn't grown up, Wendy assured her confidently, and he's just my size. She meant that he was her size in both mind and body. She did not know how she knew it. She just knew it. Do you know how many fucking horror movies start like this? Who who the fuck is the Babadook, Jimmy? The Babadook's my friend. And then it fucking eats them. Or something. I don't remember. I think they keep it as a pet. I don't fucking remember. Horror movies are terrifying. I don't watch horror movies. I read their synopses. So you'd think I'd remember, but you'd be wrong. Mr. Darling consulted Mr. Darling, but he smiled poo-poo. Mark my words, he said. It is some nonsense Nana has been putting into their heads. Just the sort of idea a dog would have. Leave it alone and it will blow over. So the dog can communicate to the children. And you're just like, nah, it's fine. You have a talking magic dog that is taking care of your fucking kids and putting ideas of strange boys that never age in their heads. In their heads. And Mr. Darling goes, ah, it's fine. God damn. God damn. All right. Cool, but it would not blow over, and soon the troublesome boy gave Mrs. Darling quite a shock. This is a horror movie! Children have the strangest adventures without being troubled by them. For instance, they may remember the mention a week after the event happened that when they were in the wood, they met their dead father and had a game with him. It was in this casual way that Wending one morning made a disquieting revelation. Some leaves of a tree had been found on the nursery floor, which certainly were not there when the children went to bed. And Mrs. Darling was puzzling over them when Wendy said with a tolerant smile, I do believe that it is Peter again. What, what do you mean, Wendy? It's so naughty of him not to wipe, she said, sighing. She was a tidy child. She explained in quite a matter-of-fact way that she thought Peter sometimes came to the nursery at night <laughs> and sat on the foot of her bed and played on his pipes to her. Unfortunately, she never woke, so she did not know how she knew. She just knew. What nonsense you talk, precious. No one can get into the house without knocking. I think he comes in by the window, she said. My love, it's three floors up. Were there not leaves at the foot of the window, mother? It was quite true. The leaves had been found very near the window. Mrs. Darling did not know what to think, for it all seemed so natural to Wendy that she could not dismiss it by saying she had been dreaming. My child, mother cried, why did you not tell me of this before? I forgot, Wendy said lightly. She was in a hurry to get to her breakfast. Oh, surely she must have been dreaming. But on the other hand, there were the leaves. Mrs. Darling examined them carefully. They were skeleton leaves. She was sure they did not come from any tree that grew in England. She crawled about the floor, peering at it with a candle for the marks of a strange foot. She rattled the poker up the chimney and tapped the walls. She let down a tape from the window to the pavement, and it was a sheer drop of thirty feet without so much as a spout to climb up by. Certainly. Wendy had been dreaming. But Wendy had not been dreaming. As the next, very next night showed, the night on which the extraordinary adventures of the children may be said to have begun. On the night we speak of all the children were once more in bed. It happened to be Nana's evening. The dog gets a day off. Okay. I don't know the working rights of dogs. But I'm pretty sure you just, you just keep them going. It's a dog. No? Okay. And Mrs. Darling had to bathe them and sung to them until one by one they let go of her hand and slid away into the land of sleep. All were looking so safe and cozy that she smiled at her fears now and sat down tranquilly by the fire to sew. It was something for Michael, who, on his birthday, was getting into shirts. 
The fire was warm, however, and the nursery dimly lit by three nightlights, and presently the sewing lay on Mrs. Darling's lap. Then her head nodded, oh, so gracefully. She was asleep. Look at the four of them, Wendy and Michael over there, and John here and Mrs. Darling by the fire. There should have been a fourth nightlight. While she slept, she had a dream. She dreamt that the Neverland had come too near, and that a strange boy had broken through from it. He did not alarm her, for she thought she had seen him before in the faces of many women who have no children. Perhaps he is to be found in the faces of some others also. But in her dreams, he had rent the film that obscures the Neverland, and saw Wendy and, and she saw Wendy and John and Michael peeping through the gap. The dream by itself would have been trifle, but while she was dreaming, the window of the nursery blew open, and a boy did drop on, on the floor. He was accompanied by a strange light, no bigger than your fist, which darted about the room like a living thing. I think it must have been uh, this light that wakened Mrs. Darling. She started up with a cry and saw the boy, and somehow she knew at once that he was Peter Pan. If you or I or Wendy had been there, we would have seen that he was very like Mrs. Darling's kiss. He was a lovely boy, clad in skeleton leaves, and the juices that ooze out of trees. But the most entrancing thing about him was that he had all his first teeth. When she saw she was grown when he saw she was grown up, he gnashed the little pearls at her. So Peter Pan has his baby teeth. That's kind of weird how his teeth are like little like a little too small for him, I guess. Interesting. Also, how the this so reads like a horror novel, doesn't it? Like the fuck. Like her children are talking about this guy who seemingly exists, and Mrs. Darling goes, no, there's no way, and then the dude turns out to exist, and what does he do when he sees an adult? He fucking gnashes his teeth at her? This shit is horrible. All right. Well, I know what, like, the story... I guess I know what the Disney story is. Who knows? Maybe the original text is a horror novel. Ugh. are familiar with my work, you'll know that I enjoy the taste of whiskey. Indeed, it fuels many of my creative outlets. Many an audiobook, many a podcast snippet have been inspired and influenced by the alcoholic beverage known as whiskey. And if you've listened to some of my stuff, you'll know that I have a pretty bog-standard favorite, um, but... I went out to the local whiskey store um, in my neck of the woods. It's a total line. I'm not sponsored, but in case you're wondering. And um, I picked up not only my my go-to, but um, a couple of others that I wanted to try. I've actually tasted two of these before, and I know they're both very good. So it's really a focus on the third one. But since I haven't done like an official kind of diagnosis um, tasting of the other two, I just kind of... I've mentioned it in passing. I thought I would do a kind of breakdown of the other two as well. So, first up, we have my bog standard favorite, the classic Belvini Caribbean cask. It is aged 14 years, um, and a portion of that time is spent in barrels that held Caribbean rum. It is incredibly smooth. It goes down super easy and it has notes of kind of fruity, vanilla-y, nature-y stuff like that. The scent is quite good. As always, we start with the schnifter test, so you got to stick your nose right in there. Smells of whiskey, really. It's a it's a pleasant scent. It's a light scent. It doesn't have this like the burn of high alcohol to it. Um, all three of these whiskeys are relatively young in that I believe the 14-year-old Caribbean cask is the oldest of the three. Um, I may have mentioned it before, but my palate does not tend to enjoy whiskeys that are very high in age because I feel like it has a stronger alcoholic burn to it, and that is not quite what I'm after. So just for posterity, we all know I love it. The Caribbean cask Belvini is just simply superb, so I'm just going to just knock a little bit back. Mm. so smooth it's got yeah like the kind of the woody notes of vanilla it is sippable it is drinkable it is just lovely and it's so smooth it's absurd <sighs> mm. oh god alright so one thing I didn't do last time actually I think I did the last time gotta have the palate cleanser clean yourself out so 
Alright. Refreshed. Up next, Glenn Meringue, Tenure, the original. This is basically just the, the default Glenn Meringue. I got this for my birthday earlier this year, and I loved it. It's got kind of a very clean scent to it. It's very um, citrus forward, and it is just quite very... It's I like to refer to this as a summer whiskey, because it is just so fucking bright and sharp and clean. And it's delicious. Mmm. This one's got a bit of a woody note to it. Mmm. Toffee. Toffee is what I would say for that one. So there's that as well. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna knock these back because they're just little tasters. So hold on. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Caribbean cask. Gone. Brr. Oh, today's going to be fun. All right. There's a bit more of the Glen Meringue, so I'm going to sip that one slowly over time. And now, <clears throat> current standing, Caribbean cask is still top dog. Glen Meringue is probably my second, to be honest with you. Um, it's probably number two on the list. Jameson's is on that list somewhere. I'm a big fan of that. Um, Dewar's is pretty solid, uh, but it's a little further down. And Glen Meringue, these are my top two. Caribbean Cast, Glen Meringue. Now, we have a new challenger. Something I spotted on the shelves while I was buying the other two. It is the... Wait, hold on. Wait a minute. I mixed these up. I mixed these up. This is the Glen Meringue. Yes. Yeah, this is the Glen Meringue. Shit, I tried the new whiskey without even realizing it. Holy crap. All right, well, I enjoy it. So there's that. The new whiskey is the um is the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve. So it should be very similar to the Caribbean Cask. Now that I've realized what this is, I'm going to do it again real quick. It smells of, yeah, it smells like toffee and burnt, and not burnt popcorn, but like caramel corn. It has a very strong buttery sense to it. But, excuse me. Now that I'm realizing what this is, I need to, I need to hold on. I, I blew past it because I thought it was the Glenlivet, but it's not. Huh. Yeah, it has a very strong buttery note, like absolutely evokes flavors of caramel and toffee, um, almost to like a candy-like degree. It's actually not that bad. It's very, very toffee forward. Mm -hmm. And the scent and in the taste, it's like it's made with butter. Yeah. And actually, toffee and butter and those kind of nutty flavors do evoke the Caribbean in my head. You get the tropical with the uh, Caribbean cask um, with a bit of that kind of earthy woodiness. Um, but this one really kind of comes at you with this kind of nutty toffiness to it. Um, very interesting. And now that I've realized what the Glen Meringue is, the Glen Meringue comes in with the citrusy side of things. Um, because it's very crisp and very clean. And it smells of, like, air almost. It smells of, like, grass, you know? Like, when you step outside, it kind of smells like that. But it's very smooth. It's really sharp. It's, um... Like, citrus and warm. I would, all, all three of these are warm. They're very warming whiskeys. But the Glenlivet Cribbing Cask, which is the, the, the new boy, was quite good. I'm a fan of the toffee notes. Um, and one thing I will say for all three of these whiskeys is that they play well together. Um, I had some 14-year Caribbean cask, and I followed that up with some 12-years Dewar's. Um, and the Dewar's on its own doesn't have much of a strong peat flavor to it. Um, and peat is what they use to smoke whiskeys to provide like a certain smokiness to it. But in comparison, the peat flavor was so much stronger. 
But the three of these whiskeys work well together because they're all fairly similar in the vein of like sweet, citrusy notes, fruity notes, light, vanilla, those sorts of things. Um, so they actually do play well together. So yeah, with the with the toffee notes of the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve, I would say it's a fairly decent whiskey. It's got a good color to it. It smells nice. If you're not a fan of caramel corn or butter toffee or anything like that, then you're not going to enjoy this whiskey because it's very strong in those notes. Um, it's actually impressive to me how much this whiskey tastes of those things. Like, you know, people will come at you and be like, mm, yes, this, this wine has flavors of barbecue smoked ribs in it. And you're like, no, it doesn't. And then you try it and you're like, holy fuck. This is barbecue smoke rib wine. Like, sometimes you're like, oh, you're just making shit up. But then other times, you're like, damn. No, you were right on the money. This whiskey actually does taste of butter toffee, which is really peculiar. But it's almost it's almost butterscotchy. Yeah, get it? Butters butterscotch. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's weird. It's like a dessert whiskey. It's very sweet. Huh, all right, well, looks like my random guess uh, worked out, especially because the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve is like $32. Can't shake a stick at that. The Bellhaven 14-year Caribbean cask is a little over 80 bucks, and the Glenmorang original 10-year is about $32. So two of these whiskeys are on the lower end in terms of price, about as much as the Terramana tequila, um, but... These are, the, the Glen Moraine in particular is one of my, my top three favorite whiskeys. And I'd say the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve is also up there. But again, if you don't like toffee notes, then you're not going to be a fan. So that is that is my official review of the of the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve. Um, Caribbean cask, Belvini, still top dog. But this Caribbean Reserve will do in a pinch. If you want to have those feelings of tropical, like fruits and summer and heat then these are, these are good whiskeys for that. So, hell yes. Let us continue on with the adventures of the terrifying Peter Pan and his kidnapping of children. So, long, long time ago, when I was a young man in the... Well, not the prime of my life, but when I was a young man, I watched a show that I feel like many people did because it's fucking fantastic, and it scrubs. Scrubs was the only show that I can think of that I watched religious. Like, I had all the DVDs, and I'd watch that shit all the fucking time. Um, that I would watch again now. Like, I used to watch Friends. I can't watch that anymore, because I've seen it so many times. It has nothing for me anymore. I can see it in my head. Um, I used to watch How Much Mother, but I've never attempted to rewatch that, because it did not age well. But Scrubs... It's pretty goddamn timeless. And it's pretty wonderful. Because much like Star Trek, um, the the timelessness of the show comes from a focus of the human characters, right? Potentially, the show is out of date medically. Like, there might be a medical procedure that they do for an illness. That isn't what they do anymore. As a normal, not normal, um, as your average person, no, not average, as someone who doesn't know anything about medicine, there we go. To me, all that stuff is might as well just be up to date, you know? So, from a subject matter point of view, I'm sure the show is dated somewhat. But since that wasn't really the focus of the show, and it was kind of window dressing for these amazing characters, the show lasts forever, just like Star Trek. Star Trek has all this dope space shit. But if you look at the original series, there isn't a whole lot of, like, space combat and stuff like that. It's much more about, these are the characters. The situations they're dealing with deal with universal topics, like racism and um, all sorts of really, really in-depth shit. Like, isolationism, the holodeck, you know, all these incredible character stories. That's why Star Trek was good. That's why Next Generation was good. And that's why Scrubs is good. And so... Nowadays, when I think about a show that I've seen into the ground, it really takes something different in order for me to re-experience the show. Enter Fake Doctor Real Friends, 
which is a podcast rewatch of Scrubs being hosted by Zach Braff and Donald Faison, who played JD and Turk, respectively, on the original show. I have I powerhouse listened to the first five episodes of their podcast today. They are dropping two episodes every week, one on Tuesday and one on Thursday, which means there's going to be a new episode for me tomorrow by the time uh, y'all um, listening to this. At the time of recording this, there's a new episode for me tomorrow. And there will be a new episode today when you listen to this, um, which makes sense because there are nine seasons of that show um, that they need to plow through. It's uh, uh, almost 200 episodes. I think it's like 196 or something like that. They were really close. Um, but there's a lot of episodes. And if they do two a week, they'll probably finish. It's going to take them a minute. But the podcast has just started. So now is a pretty good time to get in on it. Um, basically, what you will have to do if you decide to listen to this podcast. Number one, Scrubs is on Hulu right now. Uh, you spend Netflix. Hulu currently has the streaming rights which is um, kind of kind of makes sense. I was going to say, like, it's going to end up on Disney Plus at some point because it's owned by ABC, but technically, so is Hulu. So I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. Um, it's technically already on a Disney streaming platform. Um, a lot of people go like, why isn't there any adult or, like, you know, mature content on Disney Plus? Because Disney Plus is the family-friendly side of Disney content, and Hulu is the rest of it. So, if you want Disney content that isn't strictly for families, you're going to find that shit on Hulu. That's how that works. In case you didn't know. Um, but Scrubs is on Hulu. And you can listen to the Fake Doctors Real Friends podcast on Spotify, on iTunes, on iHeartRadio, which is who they've partnered with in order to actually produce this podcast. Uh, they've already had a couple of guest stars on there. Sarah Chalk, who played Elliot, and Bill Lawrence, who created the show. Um, and since Scrubs is, as I mentioned before... A show that I believe is timeless deals with topics and conversations that still impact society today as well as a love letter to the medical profession which in this ongoing situation is something that I think we can all get behind if you've never seen the show I would treat these podcasts almost like an audio commentary um, but it also provides a pretty interesting insight they talk about how they auditioned and actually got the roles and um, like how their lives changed because of the show. And that's a really fun insight that you won't get in audio commentary. Audio commentary mostly deals with the actual act of making the show. But they go a bit more into their personal lives. And it's um, nice to have the chemistry of JD and Turk uh, continue on because they are in reality very good friends. And that chemistry is reflected in the show and in their podcast. Um, I, I find that it is definitely entertaining. I might be a little biased because I love Scrubs so much. It is probably one of my all-time favorite shows. Not probably. It is one of my all-time favorite shows. Um, I don't want to rank it, but it's simply superb. And episodes that made me cry when I watched them live absolutely still make me cry because there are some episodes on here that I challenge anyone in this world to watch and not cry. If you care about yourself, your family, or humanity in general... There are episodes that will, without a shadow of a doubt, make you cry. Because these stories are so human and so universal, anyone can relate to them, and that makes them powerful, and that makes them timeless. And that's where the strength of the show comes in. So yes, I would highly recommend Fake Doctors and Real Friends. I think it is absolutely worth listening to. Uh, just make sure you skip those ads, uh, especially, if, uh, you know, I don't mean, it's I'm, they're fine <laughs> ads um, and some of them are pretty important there's a lot of good messages about cr the coronavirus um, but you know just fast forward fast and, you know, I don't care about the BuzzFeed podcast I'm never in my life going to listen to that um, but Fake Doctors Real Friends I think is pretty good and um, they are very entertaining and they make for good podcast hosts quite honestly uh, they are good communicators so there you go a little plug um, I'm not sponsored they're never going to sponsor. Uh, but they're, it's a good show. Both the original show and the podcast. So I would I would highly recommend that, especially if you're looking for something to sink your teeth into that doesn't take 27 days of real time like Critical Role does. Anyway, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Alrighty. Chapter 2. The Shadow. Mrs. Darling screamed! As if an answer to a bell, the door opened and Anna entered, returning from her evening out. Because, you know, 
Even even dog nannies need time off. I mean, what are we running? A fucking slavatorium? Sure, that's a word. Why not? Uh, she growled and sprang at the boy, who leapt lightly through the window. Again, Mrs. Darling screamed, this time in distress for him, for she thought he was killed, and she ran out into the street to look for his little body. But it was not there. She looked up, and in the black night, she could see nothing but what she thought was a shooting star. So she returned to the nursery and found Nana with something in her mouth, which proved to be the boy's shadow. As he left from the window, Nana had closed it quickly, too late to catch him, but his shadow had not had the time to get out. Slam went the window and snapped it off. You may be sure. Miss Darling examined the shadow carefully, but it was quite the ordinary kind. Okay, so... You know, Dog Nanny already probably should have been a hint that this book went outside the realm of normality. Or what one might consider to be normality. But the shadow snapping off and being something that can be observed. Interesting. Fun fact. Random, random fun fact. The Disney show Once Upon a Time uh, had Peter Pan be a villain um, in one of its seasons. And Captain Hook was the good guy. Um, but Peter Pan's shadow was voiced by Marilyn Manson. I know. That's pretty obscure fun fact. You're welcome. Anyway, Nana had no doubt of what the best thing to do was with the shadow. She hung it out at the window, uh, meaning he is sure to come back for it. Let, let us put it where he can get it easily without disturbing the children. But unfortunately, did they un misspell? Hold on. Um, oh, there's supposed to be a comma there. So I put I put the fucking PDF in a Word document, and there are just, like, typos and grammatical errors goddamn everywhere. It's kind of cheating, because it lets me know about these things, like, ahead of time, but it's mostly just missing commas, um, which is probably more to the fault of whomever transcribed to this rather than the original story. Um, anyway, but unfortunately, Miss Darling could not leave it hanging out at the window. It looked so like the washing and lowered the whole tone of the house. She thought of showing it to Mr. Darling, but he was totting up winter great coats for John and Michael. What is a great coat? Trench coat? Let's find out. I don't want to assume. I want to know. Great coat. A great coat. Yeah, it's um, it's like a pea coat. Um, you know, it's it's like an overcoat. Um, it also has like this weird flappy thing around the shoulders. Yeah, it's just a coat. It's just a real fancy coat. Real fancy coat for real fancy fucks. Uh, with a wet towel around his head to keep his brain clear, and it seemed a shame to trouble him. Besides, she knew exactly what he would say. It all comes of having a dog for a nurse. She decided to roll the shadow up and put it away carefully in a drawer until a fitting opportunity came for telling her husband. Ah, me! The opportunity came a week later. On that, page 19. Never to be forgotten Friday. Of course it was a Friday. Why does, why does it matter if it's a Friday? I suppose... Jokes about days of the week have lost all meaning for me because in the middle of the ongoing situation, um, who really cares what day of the week it is? It's kinda doesn't even matter. It's not like you're gonna go out to the bar and hang out with your friends on a Friday. Ain't happening. I thought that, uh, I thought I ought to have been specially careful on that Friday. She just say afterwards, uh, to her husband, while perhaps Nana was on the other side of her holding her hand. No, no, Mr. Darling almost said. I'm responsible for it all. I, George Darling, did it. Mea culpa. Mea culpa. He had had a classical education. Mea culpa is Latin for my fault, in case you were wondering. Um, and the only reason I know that is because it is said as a line in the song Hellfire from Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, when he's like, it's not my fault. Mea culpa. I'm not to blame. Mea culpa. It is the gypsy girl the witch who set this flame. That's one of the best Disney songs ever. So good. And they sat thus night. Sure. They sat thus, night after night, recalling that fatal Friday until every detail of it was stamped on their brains and came through on the other side like the faces of a bad coinage. And faces on a bad coinage. If only I had not accepted that invitation to dine at 27, Mr. Darling said. If only I had not poured my medicine in Nana's bowl, said Mr. Darling. If only I had pretended to like the medicine, was what Nana's wet eyes said. Okay. My liking for parties, George. My fatal gift of humor, dearest. My touchiness about trifles, dear master and mistress. And then one or more of them would break down altogether. Nana, at, at the thought, 
It's true. It's true. They ought not to have a dog for a nurse. Many a time it was Mr. Darling who put the handkerchief to Nana's eyes. That fiend! Mr. Darling would cry. Nana's bark would echo of it. But Mrs. Darling never braided Peter. There was something in the right corner of her mouth that wanted her not to call Peter names. They would sit there in the empty nursery, recalling fondly of every smallest detail of the dreadful evening. It had begun so un uneventfully, so precisely, like a hundred other evenings, when Nana putting, uh, with Nana putting on the water for Michael's bath and carrying him to it on her back. <laughs> I won't go to bed, he had shouted, like one who still believed that he had the last word on the subject. I won't, I won't. Nana, it isn't six o'clock yet. Oh dear, oh dear, I shan't love you anymore, Nana. I tell you, I won't be bathed. I won't, I won't. Then Mrs. Darling had come in, wearing her white evening gown. She had dressed early because Wendy so loved to see her in her evening gown. With that necklace George had given, page 21, her. She was wearing Wendy's bracelet on her arm. She had asked for the loan of it. Wendy so loved to lend her bracelet to her mother. She had found her two other children playing at being herself and father on the occasion of Wendy's birth, and John was saying, Um, I'm happy to inform you, Mrs. Darling, that you are now a mother, in just such tone as Mr. Darling himself may have used on the real occasion. Wendy danced with joy, just as the real Mrs. Darling must have done. Then John was born, with the extra pomp um, that he conceived due to the male, uh, with the extra pomp that he conceived due to the birth of a male, and Michael came from his bath to ask uh, to be joined, uh, to be born also. But John said brutally that they did not want any more. Damn. Michael nearly cried. Nobody wants me, he said. And of course, the lady in evening dress could not stand that. I do, she said. I so want a third child. Boy or girl? Asked Michael, not too hopefully. Boy. Then he had leapt into your arms. Such a page furniture. Little thing for Mr. and Mrs. Darling and Anna to recall now. But not so little if it was to be Michael's last night in the nursery. They go on with their recollections. It was then that I rushed in like a tornado, wasn't it? Mr. Darling would say, scorning himself. And indeed, he had been like a tornado. Perhaps there was some excuse for him. He too had been dressed for the party, and all had gone well with him until he came to his tie. It was. It is an astounding thing to have to tell. But this man, though he knew about stocks and shares, had no real mastery of his tie. Sometimes the thing yielded to him without a contest, but there were, other, there were occasions when it would have been better for the house if he had swallowed his prize and used a made-up tie or a pre-tied tie um i i don't have any pre-tied ties no i don't have any like like clip-ons um my trick is that once the tie is tied i just never untie it ever it's horrible for the health of the tie and once you do untie it you basically have to tie it either the exact same way it was tied before or it's just going to have that crinkle crease in it forever. So, you know, pros and cons. I just don't untie my ties. I just slip them off like a noose. Um, yes. This was such an occasion. He came rushing into the nursery with the crumpled little brute of a tie in his hands. Why, what is the matter, father dear? Matter? He yelled. He really yelled. This tie, it will not tie. He became dangerously sarcastic. Not round my neck, round the bedpost. Oh, yes, 20 times. I pinched one another. Made it up round the bedpost, but round my neck, no. Oh, dear, no. Begs to be excused. He thought Mrs. Darling was not sufficiently impressed, and he went on sternly. I warn her of this, mother. Unless, uh, that unless this tie is round my neck, uh, we don't go to dinner tonight. And if I don't go out to dinner tonight, I never go into the office again. If I don't go into the office again, you and I starve, and our children will be flung into the streets. Even then, Mrs. Darling was placid. Let me try, dear, she said. And indeed, that was what he had come to ask her to do. And with her nice cool hand, she tied his tie for him, while the children stood around to see their fates decided. Some men would have resented her being able to do it so easily, but Mr. Darling was far too fine in nature for that. He thanked her carelessly at once, forgot his rage, and in another moment was dancing around the room with Michael on his back. How wildly re-romped, said Mrs. Darling, now recalling it. Our last romp, Mr. Darling groaned. Oh, George, do you remember Michael suddenly said to me, How did you get to know me, Mother? I remember. They were rather sweet, don't you think, George? And they were ours. My ours, and now they're gone. So they've just given up on their children, I'm guessing. The fuck is in my teeth? Hold on. That was weird. I think it was a bit of a food or something. Anyway. Um, so their children are gone on the Neverland adventure, and the parents are like, Remember how great our kids were? Ah, oh, well, what are you gonna do? Um, the romp had ended with the appearance of Nana, and most unluckily, Mr. Darling collided against her, covering his trousers with hairs. 
They were not only new trousers, but they were the first he had ever had with a braid on them. And he had to bite his lip to prevent tears coming. Of course, Mrs. Darling brushed him, but he began to talk again about its being a mistake to have a dog for a nurse. George Nana is a treasure. No doubt, but I have an uneasy feeling at times that she looks upon the children as puppies. Oh no, dear one. I feel sure she knows they have souls. Holy shit! Fuck you, all dogs go to heaven. You don't have a soul. You ain't going nowhere. You just poof into nothingness. Fuck you. Anyway, I wonder, Mr. Darling said thoughtfully, I wonder. It was an opportunity, his wife felt, for telling him about the boy. At first he, page 25, poo-pooed the story, but he became thoughtful when uh, she showed him the shadow. So he didn't believe her. And then he was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe you're right. When she showed her a physical shadow separated from the boy, he's still not convinced, but he's willing to listen. All right. Sure. It's nobody I know, he said, examining it carefully, but he does look like a scoundrel. Racist. We're still discussing it, you remember. We were still discussing it, you remember, said Mr. Darling. When Nana came in with Michael's medicine, you will never carry the bottle in your mouth again, Nana, and it's all my fault. Strong man though he was, there was no doubt that he had behaved rather foolishly over the medicine. If he had a weakness, it was for thinking that all in all his life, he had taken medicine boldly. And so now when Michael dodged the spoon in Nana's mouth, he had said reprovingly, Be a man, Michael. Won't, won't, Michael cried naughtily. Mrs. Darling left the room to get chocolate for him, and Mr. Darling thought uh, this showed want of firmness. Mother, don't pamper him, he called out after her. Michael, when I was your age, I took medicine without a murmur. I said, thank you, kind parents, for giving me bottles to make me well, page 26. He really thought of this was true. Wendy, uh, Wendy, who was now in her nightgown, believed it also, and she said to encourage Michael, that medicine you sometimes take, father, is much nasty, isn't it? Ever so much nastier, said Mr. Darling bravely. And I would take it now as an example to you, Michael, if I hadn't lost the bottle. He had not exactly lost it. He had climbed in the dead of night to the top of the wardrobe and hidden it there. What he did not know was that the faithful Liza had found it and put it back on his washstand. Who the fuck is Liza? I thought the dog's name was Nana. Who's Liza? I don't know. Liza's just another character. Maybe we'll find out later. I doubt it, but maybe. All right. Anyway. Um, I know where it is, Father. Wendy cried, always glad to be of service. I'll bring him. And she was off before he could stop her. Immediately, his spirits sank in the strangest way. John, he said, shuddering. It's most beastly stuff. It's that nasty, sticky, sweet kind. He'll be over soon, Father, said John cheerily. And then in rushed Wendy with the medicine in a glass. I've been... Uh, I have been as quick as I could, she panted. You've been wonderfully quick. Her, page 27... Father retorted with a vindictive politeness that was quite thrown away upon her. Michael first, he said doggedly. Father first, said Michael, who was of a suspicious nature. I shall be sick, you know, Mr. Darling said threateningly. Come on, father, said John. Hold your tongue, John, his father rapped out. Wendy was quite puzzled. I thought you took it quite easily, father. Perhaps you were just being a little bitch, father. That's not the point, he retorted. The point is that there is more in my glass than Michael's spoon. His proud heart was nearly bursting. And it isn't fair. I would say it, uh, though it were my last breath, it isn't fair. Father, I am waiting, said Michael coldly. It's all very well that you are waiting, so am I waiting. Father, it's a cowardly custard. So are you a cowardly custard. I'm not frightened. Neither am I frightened, page 28. Well, then take it. Well, then take it. Well, then you take it. Wendy had a spl splendid idea. Why not both take it at the same time? Certainly, said Mr. Darling. Are you ready, Michael? Wendy gave the words, one, two, three, and Michael took his medicine. But Mr. Darling slipped his behind his back. There was a yell of rage from Michael and, and oh father, Wendy exclaimed. What do you mean by oh father, Mr. Darling demanded. Stop that row, Michael. I meant to take my bite. I missed it. It was dreadful the way all three were looking at him, just as if they did not admire him. Look here, all of you, he said entreating, as soon as Nana had gone into the bathroom. I have just thought of a splendid joke. I shall pour my medicine into Nana's bowl and she will drink it, thinking it as milk. It was the color of milk, but the children did not have their father's sense of humor, and they looked at him reproachfully as he poured, page 29, the medicine into Nana's bowl. What fun, he said doubtfully, and they did not dare expose him when Mrs. Darling and Nana returned. Nana, good dog, he said, patting her. Put a little milk into your bowl, Nana. Nana wagged her tail, ran to the medicine, began lapping at it. She then gave Mr. Darling such a look, not an angry look, she showed him the great red tear that made us so sorry for noble dogs and crept into her, into her kennel. Mr. Darling was frightfully ashamed of himself, as you fucking should be, you twat. Uh, but he would not give in. In a horrid silence, Mr. Darling smelt the bowl. Oh, George, she said, it's your medicine. 
It was only a joke, he roared when she comforted her boys and Wendy hugged Nana. Much good, he said bitterly, my wearing myself to the bone trying to be funny in this house. Boy, dude, you know what? I feel you. I feel you. Um, anyway. And still, Wendy hugged Nana. That's right, he shouted. Coddle her. Nobody coddles me. Oh, dear, no. I am the... Page 30. Breadwinner, why should I be coddled? Why, why, why? George, said Mrs. Darling, entreated him. Not so loud, the servants will hear you. Somehow they had gone, uh, they had got into the way of calling Liza the servants. Okay, so Liza's their servant. So they can't afford a fucking human nanny, but they can afford a servant. Slave, anyway. Let them, he answered, answered recklessly. Bring in the whole world, but I refuse to allow that dog to lord it in my nursery for an hour longer. The children wept and Anna ran to her beseechingly, but he waved her back. He felt he was a strong man again. In vain, he vain, he cried. The proper place for you is the yard, and there you will go to be tied up this instant. George, George, Mrs. Darling whispered. Remember what I told you about the boy? Alas, he would not listen. He was determined to show who was the master in that house. And when commands would not draw Nana from the kennel, he lured her out with honeyed words and seizing her roughly, dragged her from the nursery. He was ashamed of himself, yet he did it. It was all for owing to his too affectionate nature, which craved for ad admiration, page 31. When he had tied her up in the backyard, the wretched father went and sat in the passage with a knuckle to his eyes. In the meantime, Mrs. Darling had put the children to bed to unwanted silence and lit their nightlights. They could hear Nana barking and John whimpered. It is because he is chaining her up in the yard. But Wendy was wiser. That is not Nana's unhappy bark, she said. A little guessing uh, what was about to happen. That's her bark when she smells danger. Danger! Are you sure, Wendy? Oh, yes. Mrs. Darling quivered and went to the window. It was securely fastened. She looked out and the night was peppered with stars. They were crowding around the house as if curious to see what would take place there, but she did not notice this. Nor that one or two of the smaller ones winked at her. Yet a nameless fear clutched at her heart and made her cry. Oh, how I wish I wasn't going to a party tonight. Page 32. Even Michael, already half to sleep, knew that she was perturbed. And he asked, Can anything harm us, mother, after the night lights are lit? Nothing precious, she said. They are the eyes of a mother leaves behind to guard her children. She went from bed to bed, singing enchantments over them, and little Michael flung his arms around her. Mother, he cried, I am glad of you. They were the last words she heard from him for a long time. Tell me this shit isn't a goddamn horror story. Um, what the fuck? So there's a picture here. Um, oh, okay, so the chapter's not over yet. Um, yeah, there's a big picture here of Peter coming in the window and terrifying the children. Um, number 27 was only a few yards distant. But there had been a slight fall of snow, and father and mother darling picked their way over deftly, so not to soil their shoes. They were already um, they were already the only persons in the street, and all the stars were watching them. Stars are beautiful, but they may not take an active part in anything. They must just look on forever. It is a punishment to put on put on them for something they did so long ago that no star now knows what it was. So the older ones have become glassy-eyed and seldom speak. Winking is the star language. The little ones don't wonder. They're not really friendly to Peter, who had a mischievous way of stealing up behind them and trying to blow them out. But they were so fond of fun that they were on his side tonight, anxious to get the grown-ups out of the way. So as soon as the door of number 27 closed on Mr. and Mrs. Darling, there was a commotion in the firmament, and the smallest of all the stars in the Milky Way screamed out, No, Peter! And he bombed the Darling children's and blew up their house. That's right, Peter is a member of the IRA. Uh, political jokes from, from, I guess, kind of forever. Kind of for always. Anyway. And I think that'll do it for this week's episode of the Going Upcast. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Stay safe out there. It doesn't seem to be changing all that soon. So, you know, bat down the hatches, wash your hands, don't touch people, wear a mask. Um, for the love of fucking God, stay safe. And uh, I'll see you all next week with some more Peter Pan and some more other stuff. Have a good one, everyone.